the prophet then responded with a hymn, which is chapter 3, and a prayer, petitioning God, but praise as well. In a very memorable fashion, God allowed him to see a theophany, a, a amazing, majestic vision of God's coming judgment, the Lord's mighty salvation of his people coming up from the south and literally most likely picking up a bow that might have been the rainbow itself and shooting arrows and the sun and the moon watching in anticipation and silence to see who is going to be on the receiving end of those arrows and the enemies in the land trembling praying that that they would not be on the end that they would not be the object of god's wrath and all of this habakkuk pointed out was so that God could save his people. The Lord was bringing mighty salvation. And that's what we see in verse 13. And we're going to start today with verse 13, and we're going to read the rest of the chapter and then pray. Folks, just like Habakkuk was reminded, we can take refuge and find our hope and confidence regardless the worst things that you can think of you could list that could happen to you or to our country. The mighty sovereign Lord is still our strength. Verse 13 of chapter 3. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invaded us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. A flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Father, what? A blessing and an encouragement. Not that you will take us out of all troubling times. There's a great part of us that wishes you would. We, we don't want to have to go through discomfort and any sort of judgment. We, we want to be on flowery beds of ease many times. Be comfortable until Jesus returns. And we're reminded even reading these verses that is not the case. Father, at the same time, what great relief and joy to know that you are coming and that you are with us and that you will be our strength and that you provide rest and that we can even marvelous, marvelously rejoice in the midst of these terrible things, knowing that you will stabilize us and you will help us to move on to be useful servants and that you will bring one day full salvation through the return of Jesus Christ. And so as we continue, as we finish up this book, let us be encouraged. Let these folks today see that yes, there can be even be joy 
in the midst of great tragedy because we know the end of the story. And we look forward to the day when you will return, when Jesus will return and make all things right. We look forward to that. In the meantime, help us to be faithful here. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Strength in the day of trouble. In the first few verses here, 13 through 16, we're going to see we can have strength to wait on the Lord in the midst of troubling times, in the midst of great difficulties. Why? Because, folks, God makes it clear he will save his own. You can bank and count on that. Don't doubt that. God will save his people. And that's what we had as we ended um, on verse 13 last week. I wanted to include that again as a good start for the rest of this last uh, push forward, so to speak, in this passage. And we're reminded that the purpose of God's, the Lord's, literal, his military march from the south, as we saw last week, that he came to bring deliverance from the enemy to his anointed people. And remember, his success in that battle was described in vivid terms. Take some time to go back and look over that again. We won't today, but God promised that he would succeed. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, the salvation of your anointed. And when it says anointed there, that means the true people of God that truly have a relationship with him, because remember, Habakkuk also was dismayed about the wickedness among his own people. And in that political nation of Israel, certainly as a nation, they were under God. But as a people, there were many that had rejected him in their hearts. And so the reminder here is for those that are truly anointed. And today we would say, have put their faith and trust in Jesus, that have a sincere, a true relationship with Jesus Christ, folks, we can depend, we can count on the salvation of God's people because we're a part of that. He will come. Even though things seem really, really dark, and we're dismayed about a lot of things. Habakkuk had his own list. Each one of us today could make our own list, right? They could go to God and say, Lord, what about this? And what about this? And you know, it wouldn't be wrong to do that. You could actually do that just like Habakkuk did. And it'd be better than complaining to others, right? It'd be better than complaining to politicians. We just had a primary. We're glad for some of the results. But we honestly don't know what's going to happen in November, folks. We have no idea. We may be sorely disappointed. But we can go to God with our list and say, why, Lord? And he will listen. And he will respond in his time. Just be prepared. Like Habakkuk, we may not get the answer that we were thinking we would get. But in the end, Habakkuk is reminded God's coming. His salvation is assured for his people. And then again, in more vivid detail here at the end of verse 13, God makes it clear the leadership of the wicked would be severely injured and incapacitated. Read the end there. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. That's pretty vivid description, right? In fact, we may not want to meditate on that too long, but although, what do we have there? One of those musical terms, Selah. So God does call us to meditate on that. Crush the head is the leadership 
of um, the enemy nations. And this word really means, well, crushed would be severely wounded, right? But it does mean severely wounded, a fatal blow. Laying him bare certainly has the idea from thigh to neck of being incapacitated. And God will do that to his enemy. We're talking specifically about the Babylonians, right? The Chaldeans. And don't forget what God did do to Nebuchadnezzar. He laid him low. In his pride and arrogance, Nebuchadnezzar had many times to turn to God through his faithful servants that were under him. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was their Persian names. Um, and he had many opportunities to turn to God, and yet Nebuchadnezzar still prided himself on his accomplishments, and God literally, one, I think one of the fulfillments here, crushed him as far as his reputation, it made him as a beast of the field, right? And then we saw in our in our um, message, our series on God's will, at the end, Nebuchadnezzar remembers and God restores to him his sanity. He says, I was wrong. There's only one God. There's only one reason that I am where I am. And that's the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel. And he is the all-powerful, sovereign God. And he is the one that does everything. And I bow before that truth. Remarkable. He learned. He was um, subjugated to the great celestial warrior, the God of Israel. And that would happen to all of the leadership. In God's timing, they would be dealt with. And when the Babylonians were finally dealt with, folks, they were never heard from again. God did deal with them in his time, as he will all of his enemies. And so, he continues on with this description of what will happen to God's enemies. And we might remember, remember that vivid picture of God picking up his bow and getting ready to shoot those arrows, and then the arrows are shot, and everybody's wondering where it's going to go and where it's going to hit? Well, here we have it in verse 14. It tells us who or what were the intended target, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. Again, the leaders of these enemy warriors, remember they were reveling, remember the description that God gave um, Habakkuk about their arrogance, and they were reveling in their victory, and in their decimation of God's people, they thought they were going to be on top forever. And God says, no, when I when I show up, I'll deal with them, and I'll use their own weapons as well to deal with them. And I will turn things upside down, and I will come literally like a whirlwind or like a tornado. And as they gloat, um, and rejoice in their ability to consume the helpless, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. These, again, these warriors, these enemies were reveling in the fact that they were devouring God's people. And God would deal with them and decimate them and bring salvation to his people. The exact opposite of what these enemies expected in their arrogance. God would turn this whole thing around. And then verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. 
And uh, again, this this uh, picture of God's power with water and with the oceans and with the rivers. And the Lord will literally trample over the enemy with great power. This has a picture, that word for trample also can be used for pressing grapes in a wine press with great pressure that those enemies will be trampled on and, again, will be incapacitated. God says, yes, they're, they're um, angry, they're prideful, they will do terrible things when they come because they're my instrument of judgment, but they won't last forever. I will deal with them, and I will deal with them in a complete and mighty way. It may still seem kind of strange to think of water as this kind of power and doing this much damage. It does remind me, again, of a book that I read about the Jonestown Flood, written by David McCullough. And he's written a lot of books. I don't know if you've read. He's a, a great historian. He passed away recently. I don't know that he's a Christian by any means, but he's written a lot of books. And this one in particular was very vivid. Um, so we were on a trip, and I was listening to the audio and also trying to read the book at the same time. And you had uh, this mountain range that goes through the center of um, Pennsylvania. And the Jonestown, this little town that where this flood occurred, is actually um, northeast, I believe, of Pittsburgh. And at the, the, it was in this mountain range, and these little towns like Jonestown and many others were in these hills as you made your way up to the top, at the top of this particular range, um, wherein the cities resided below, there was a water reservoir owned by a number of very wealthy people. And uh, they, they used it for their own purposes. They had a special club and a special uh, situation there where it was a, like a summer resort. And they would use this for their purposes, but they weren't very careful. It was also a dam, and at, at, the, at the edge of that dam, it, they had to be very careful because there was so much water there that obviously if something broke in the dam, you could flood out all of those little towns. But these men, in their arrogance, thought that they had it all under control. They really didn't take as much time with it as they should, but they thought they'd reinforced it enough. And it was, I believe, in the 18, early 1870s, where things finally came to a halt. There was some weather patterns, a great storm, lots of rain, and it finally overwhelmed that dam wall that kept that reservoir from the towns, and it burst, and the people that were there panicked. There was nothing they could do. They just realized as they helplessly watched this surge of millions of gallons of water go down the mountain, realizing that hundreds of people would lose their lives and they wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And the whole story is fascinating as it is terrible of the strength of water that literally wiped out towns and left nothing. People, cattle, animals, vehicles, trains, all decimated because of the power of water. Folks, as awful as that is, the power of God is even greater. And when judgment comes, it will be even more complete than any of those stories. That will be like a walk in the park compared to God's judgment when God comes to judge. And so it's a fitting picture here, the surging of mighty waters. God will completely deal with the enemy. Doesn't it also bring up the uh, memories of the Red Sea 
And the Egyptians, I think that's purposeful here. As God is reminding Habakkuk, remember what I did all the way back then when I delivered my people initially, Habakkuk. Remember the surging waters that dealt with the Egyptians with finality. It will happen again. I will save my people. I will judge my enemies. And we can have strength and confidence to wait on God knowing that he will deal with those things, even in the midst of great difficulty. Now, this is interesting. As the prophet remembers these things, he has an, an interesting reaction here, a pretty violent reaction. He says, verse 16, I hear, and my body trembles, and my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Well, that doesn't seem to be the response of somebody who's trusting and depending upon God. That's a very violent, fearful reaction. Interesting why that would take place in this part of the chapter. What we can ask, what is troubling the prophet so violently at this point? Well, I think there's two things. I think, first of all, very naturally, we might remember that the very fact of his viewing this magnificent powerful vision of the celestial warrior, his God, coming to save his people, certainly made him tremble in fear and awe of God. Isn't that what happened in even Isaiah 6 and many others as the prophets received visions? Other prophets, similar reactions to God's revealing himself. In fact, I'll read to you just briefly here from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah trembled. I think that's what's going on here with Habakkuk as well. As he sees this mighty vision of God with his arrows posed and shooting his arrows toward the enemy, it still feels, fills him with a reverent fear and trembling. I hear my body trembles, my lips quiver. Um, this this trembling this uh, description of trembles and lips quivering is the idea of being incapacitated really by fear. Rottenness in the bones almost has the idea of he's he's shaken, he's comatose, and then my legs tremble beneath me. He's barely able to stand. All right, I mean this has really affected him. Certainly the vision of God was overwhelming to him. But at the same time, I think it was something else. I think he trembles at the judgment that he knows is going to come to Judah. And as much as he knows God will bring salvation, he's also reminded that he's in for some terrible times. And he trembles at that as well. He knows that God is going to bring on Judah judgment from these cruel, awful Babylonians. Well, he's fearful. He's terrorized, so to speak, by this. Is there anything 
that can help stabilize this prophet in his fear? Is there anything that can help stabilize us when we get this fearful? Certainly is. Look where he reminds himself, where he turns his attention. The reminder that in God's timing, the Lord of all armies will deliver his anointed is what saves him and brings him peace and rest. He's trembling. He can barely stand up, and yet he directs his mind, which we must do as well, folks. Our responsibility is to direct our minds to the truth of God's word when we fear. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. What day of trouble? The one that's going to come upon God's enemies. I know we're facing our own day of trouble. But one day there's going to be an even worse, more complete, overwhelming day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And so I quietly wait for that. Instead of being incapacitated then by fear, Habakkuk can wait. And here's the beauty of this. That word for quietly wait really is a word of rest. In the midst of the most terrible things that Habakkuk can think of, he says, I can still experience rest. Folks, that's marvelous. That's hope for all of us who struggle to sleep at night. And I'm one of those sometimes. When I wake up and you get thinking about all of that sorts of different things in your mind and you can't get to sleep and you want that rest and it doesn't seem like it's possible and we get too worked up by the things going on in our schedules and, and the things going on with our family and what's going on in our world, we can get really anxious. We can be almost comatose sometimes and yet we don't have to be. Habakkuk says, I can quietly rest in the midst of all this fervor and trouble because I know that God will save me. That's our hope. Folks, that's the only hope we have. And it's more than enough. But no matter what we're facing, maybe we're facing guilt over our own sin, like we talked about with David. Does that mean there's no rest for God's people? There certainly is rest. We repent. We turn back to him. We turn to the God of our salvation, and we can rest no matter what we face. God will come and deliver us. Um, I enjoyed playing basketball for many years in high school, from 7th grade all the way to 12, in a small Christian school. And uh, We had years when we were really good, and other years not so good. Uh, but we would play. Our, our school was small enough we had to go to uh, another church, a number of miles away and meet and practice in their gym. And by the time our practice was done many times, so this was before I, I could drive. I think it was when I was yeah, seventh, eighth grade. And I would have to wait on my dad to pick me up. And the problem was everybody else, you know, these were all farming communities, farmers, families, and things. And these guys were driving around in trucks and stuff, you know, 11 and 12 years old. I think that was legal. Um, but they, they, they were able to, have, uh, be, have independent wheels when they were very young, but I wasn't, I, I didn't get that opportunity. I had to wait on my dad. The problem is, especially in, in fall, when it starts to get dark really early, and we would be done, and there'd be nobody left at this church hardly, maybe a janitor walking around or something, and I'd be sitting outside, and it was getting dark, and this was surrounded by this really thick, dense woods. And there was one light there in the parking lot. 
what I had one tall um, street light. And I, I will admit, I got a little nervous at times. And I would hear sounds. Oh, come on, you're just playing, you're just getting yourself all worked up. I thought, what if somebody comes in here who's not my dad? Yeah, I, I just work myself up and get all fearful, or I hear another noise and try to figure out what that is, and then I wonder, man, it's my dad. And we didn't have cell phones back then, so I didn't. I couldn't always call my dad. I was kind of at the mercy of when he was done with work and would show up and pick me up. And I, I tended to get a little fearful on those things. But what I always reminded myself, even when I was really afraid, was that, you know what, I'm his son. He has to pick me up. He has to at some point come and get me. And he always did. Even though at some points I was a little nervous than others, and I got in the car, I'm like, Dad, come on, I have to wait this late. It wasn't that way all the time. But the darkness around me was scary. And I had to remind myself, my dad is coming. He will pick me up. Well, folks, in a much more deeper sense, when the darkness around us gets terrible and we hear things and we see things and we start to guess, we start to wonder, are we even going to have a nation soon? And all of these things, folks, remember, our Father's coming. And he will deal with all this. And he will pick us up. He will save us. Well, we're already saved in Christ. But the finalization of that salvation will be wonderful. So he is even more dependable than an earthly father, right? Remember those things. God will save his people. He will judge his enemies. But we can also have strength to re rejoice, not just wait on God, but rejoice in God in the midst of troubling times. And that may be the, the more surprising thing, is that God can actually give us joy in the midst of trouble. Look at verse 17. And as we get into this, let me just ask you this question, because this is basically what Habakkuk does. You think, make a list. What are some of the worst possible things that could happen to you personally. I don't know if you've ever made that list before. You probably have it in your mind, whether you realize it or not. The worst possible scenarios. What about the worst possible scenarios for our country? You probably have a few of those, right? When we're facing, if those things were to come true, could we still trust God, even through things that difficult and terrible? Well, folks, in back, it makes his own list here of worst possible scenarios, starting from the least to the most disconcerting. Let's look at this, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom. Now, figs in this time were a delicacy. They were certainly a beloved treat. Uh, there was baking that was done through them and certain medicinal qualities. So it would be a loss if the fig tree harvest was totally decimated, but it wouldn't be a hardship as much as it would just be a great disappointment. It would be a disappointment to God's people. And then he goes further. The fruit beyond the vines, nor the fruit beyond the vines really is talking about the grapes, as you would think, from the vine that were literally, remember as we talked about this and, and talked about how wine was used back then, it was a part of a daily drink that would also help purify the water. So it was important, but the loss of that would be inconvenient rather than severe. There was still water to drink. It's not quite as exciting or fun. It's a little less safe. And he continues, the produce of the olive to fail. That was a little bit greater concern. 
if you know anything about the Middle East, especially at this time, the olive crop was used not just for eating, but for cooking as well, olive oil and lighting. That's what they used to light their homes. And if they lost that, things would get a lot more discomforting and difficult. Harder to cook, harder to see it thing. That's a pretty substantial loss. But he continues. The fields yield no food. The loss of grain from the fields would certainly be a devastating loss. It could literally mean starvation of the populace. That would truly be awful if that happened. And again, he's going through his list. What if we lost the fig? What if we lost the, the grapes? What if we lost the olives crop? What if we lost the grain? He continues, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. And now he refers to the livestock that made up much of the wealth of the Jewish nation. Remember, these folks are basically, in all these different scenarios throughout God's word, they're still basically shepherds and farmers. What they are, even as they're battling other nations and God's giving them victory, they're using farming tools many times. And to lose all of their livestock, their cattle and their sheep, and not only used for food, but for clothing, and also manual labor that would prepare the soil for planting and all these things. That would be a devastating loss. But even in this list, folks, one or two of these losses was a difficulty, but they could get through. But all of these together, we're talking about the total economic loss of a society, the financial ruin of the nation. Can you think of a few things more devastating than that? Could we come to financial ruin today? I'm not trying to gin up fear in you, but I think we could all think of things that we're concerned about in our economy. The increase of national debt, the war on fossil fuels. I, I will tell you as a pastor, I don't have a lot of faith in this whole green energy thing. And we need those fossil fuels. They're important for us. The inflation of the dollar, the weakening workforce, higher taxation, and even this weird, crazy thing, it's true, it's in the news, we continue to lose food processing plants all over the country, very bizarre. One of those would be devastating, but we put them all together, right? And we realize we have our own list of concerns that all those together could bring devastation. What do we do? Well, our ultimate faith better not be in our own national economy then, should it? We need something else to have our faith in. And so Habakkuk says this in verse 18. He says, I will not put my faith even in our national economy, but I will rejoice in the Lord. And I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk remembers. Who do we trust in desperate times of devastating loss? Well, folks, it's even on our dollar bill, right? In God we trust. I don't know. I'm sure you've probably heard this hymn. A man named William Cowper, um, early on in our nation's history, had a very brief time of ministry. He died as a young man. He was a very sensitive man. He struggled with depression, but God used him in his writings to bring um, comfort and encouragement to God's people. And there's one poem that he wrote that I found, and, and it was based on this text. 
I thought would be appropriate to read this. It's called In Him Confiding, but you probably might remember it from the first phrase. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing on his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again, a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. In holy contemplation, we sweetly then pursue the theme of God's salvation and find it ever new. Set free from present sorrow, we cheerfully can say, e'en let the unknown tomorrow bring with it what it may. It can bring with it nothing, but he will bear us through. Who gives the lilies clothing will clothe his people too. Beneath the spreading heavens, no creature but is fed. And he who feeds the ravens will give his children bread. See if this next line sounds familiar. Though vine nor fig tree neither, their wanted fruit shall bear. Though all the, though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there, yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Beautiful words. Folks, rejoice here in the Hebrew is literally, and he talks about rejoicing in the Lord, the jubilant exultation of seeing the defeat of one's foe. Jubilant rejoicing <laughs> in the midst of this kind of devastation. Is that even possible? Come on. It's possible. We can do that. It depends on where our trust is. The second word, joy, there refers to an enthusiastic joy with emotion. That may cause one to twirl or tremble in anticipation. So the prophet's all over the place here. He's trembling with fear one minute, and then God reminds him of the truths of his word. Now he's trembling with joy. Folks, out of the two, I'd rather tremble with joy <laughs> than fear over what's going on around me. The song that I just read to you, this poem, it was done uh, a song that uh, I was uh, had the privilege of being part of uh, the Bob Jones University Chorale. And I was at Bob Jones, uh, directed by Dr. Warren Cook. And this song has been put more recently to music and a choral number that is just beautiful. Uh, there was one of our members, his name was Jonathan, came into class one day. We'd been praying for him. We knew his mom was very sick and, and not doing well. And Dr. Cook called us all together and said, I just want you all to know that Jonathan found out this morning that his mother passed away. And he said, I just asked Jonathan if he would like us to sing a particular song of encouragement to him as he gets ready because he was getting ready to leave school, leave everything, seminary studies, and go home and help his family. He had made that choice to help his family out during this time. He said he's chosen a specific song, and he chose that song, Sometimes a Light Surprises, this very text. And I remember he joined us, and he was singing, and folks, he had just lost his mother. And there was a look of joy on his face. It was marvelous. And I realized it's something that only God can do. But the message of this text had permeated John's spirit, and he could have joy in the midst of great sorrow. So in the midst of all this, Habakkuk ends in this beautiful note to remind us that God will give us strength to endure in trouble. God, the Lord, is my strength. 
He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So Habakkuk realizes that word God, the Lord, is only used one other time. It's rarely used in the Old Testament, but it means the sovereign Lord. It's one of the most powerful words for God because it refers to his sovereignty and his control overall. He says, my sovereign Lord is my all-sufficient strength, is the Hebrew there, that he will give me strength beyond what money or wealth or food or any of these things that we're about ready to lose. God will give me a strength beyond all that. And so he's the one that I trust, and he will keep me stabilized. He makes my feet like the deer's. I think the King James has the word hind, which means a female deer. And this was a picture of a female deer in a high mountainous place that was able to walk with stability because of the way that God had created her. Habakkuk says, I can have that same stability in the path of life that God calls me to walk. He will keep me sure-footed and stable. One commentator says, sure-footed. The Lord's people may expect to ascend the heights of victory despite severe setbacks. The heights of the earth, the places of conquest and domain, shall be the ultimate possession of God's people. Habakkuk knew what would happen in the end and what would be his ultimate possession. And so his knowledge of God and God's promises kept him stable. One more quote here that I just thought was, was appropriate. Many of you, I've mentioned Diedrich Bonhoeffer before, a German theologian. God used in powerful ways, but it was toward the end of his life. When he literally viewed Hitler as such a threat that he associated with a group that tried to assassinate Hitler. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was convinced, even as a Christian, that what Hitler was proposing and how it was his thinking was destroying his nation that he had to be dealt with. Well, the flat didn't work out as well as what they had hoped, and it was found out that Bonhoeffer was, had associations with this and was put in prison. And he wrote, he was a very um, prolific um, reader and writer, and it was a few days literally before eventually he would die. Uh, he would be uh, terminated, executed, by the Nazis, and he wrote this poem. And if any of uh, if anyone could say to be going through difficult times, I'm sure that Bonhoeffer could lay claim to that at this point, right? He said, "Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving, of grieving, even to the dregs of pain at Thy command, we will not falter, thankfully receiving all that is given by Thy loving hand." But should it be thy will once more to release us, the life's enjoyment and its good sunshine, that which we have learned from sorrow shall increase us, and all our life be dedicated as thine. Whatever our greatest fears are, folks, you can trust in God as your Savior. You have to decide to do that, but you can do that to endure and to grow us. And like Bonhoeffer said, regardless of whether he gives me freedom again or not, if he gives me freedom, great. I've learned a lesson about trusting in him and being more faithful to serve him. If I never am released and lose my life, then I see his loving hand and I'll be with him forever. 
That is the type of attitude that we need to have because, folks, we know the end of the story. We know ultimate salvation is ours. Eternal deliverance is coming in his timing. It will be here. Don't doubt. In the meantime, we depend in the darkness of the hour on his strength. And yes, as amazing as it is, we rejoice. Remarkable. But that is the strength of our God in our lives. Father, thank you for a beautiful way to end this book. We're so grateful for the truth that you illuminated to Habakkuk and that we can now benefit from. Father, we, we know, we think about this maybe too often, but we know that our country, we see our country, country crumbling around us. And we're concerned and we're dismayed at the immorality and the lack of morality and seeing the financial foundations be destroyed. We can tell without even having a prophet in our midst that we're in for some difficult times if things continue to work. So, Lord, help us now with that realization to do an assessment of our lives and see who are we really trusting in. And if we're shaken to the core and trembling over what could happen in our nation, then that is a reminder, as it was with Habakkuk, that our, <coughs> we put our trust in the wrong things. Our trust isn't in politicians or financial institutions or even our way of life as we know it. But it's in the God of all comfort and strength and rest. And so, Lord, as amazing as it seems, we pray for that rest in our lives. And I pray for that as the pastor of this church, for rest and peace in our lives, even with the storms coming. Because we know in the end that you will bring justice and you will deal with all things and we will have eternal rest and peace forever. We long for that. Help us to be faithful in the meantime, looking up, dependent upon your promises, confident in your love and your salvation. Let us go forth in a mighty way and proclaim the gospel of Jesus to a world that needs it before it ends. Help us to do that well. Well, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.